many government programs are outdated, lack accountability, and don't always benefit the people they were designed to help. We think public-private partnerships can help change that. Welcome to People First, a podcast about improving government services to the citizen, brought to you by the Center for Accountability, Modernization, and Innovation. Join us as we discuss how we can make government work better for the American people. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to People First, a podcast about improving government services to the citizen, brought to you by the Center for Accountability, Modernization, and Innovation. More information on the center can be found at thecenterforami.org. I want to welcome everybody back from the holidays since the last time we recorded was prior to Christmas. And as always, I want to welcome my friend, partner, co-pilot, and uh, wise one, John Faso, former congressman from New York. John, how are you doing? Great, Stan. Uh, nice to be with you and uh, look forward to uh, better things in 2021 than we all experienced in 2020. Yeah, we, one can only, we hope that it's all uphill from here. Um, but anyway, John, great to see you. Uh, John is a senior advisor to the center and worked on a lot of the issues that the center is focused on when he was in Congress and, and since. Um, we've got a lot to cover. We have a great guest coming up in a few minutes um, who's going to, I think, offer some really interesting insight. She also happens to be an old friend, so it's the first time I get to try to embarrass her in public, where she maybe in the past has tried to embarrass me. Uh, but John, um, I want to talk a little bit about what we've seen relative to the pandemic and food insecurity and food assistance over the last couple of months, particularly since our last uh, time we were together. Um, and I'm going to start with a report that we actually posted on the website, uh, on the Center for AMI.org. It was actually it was uh, prepared by uh, Russ Sykes, who's a senior a consultant to us, but also, as you know, a good friend of yours and an expert in the field of, of, of food assistance. And Marsha Simon, similarly, an advisor to the center and also an expert in the field. And what really struck me about this report, and I'd, I'd love your input and your take on it, him giving your years working these issues on the Hill, uh, are two things. One is we talk a lot about food insecurity and uh, issues associated with nutrition. I feel like it's one part of the pandemic that is widely underreported and under-understood, if that's that's a term. And it's just people don't realize it. And so I was looking at the results. And what Russ and Marsha did, which was really quite interesting, is although USDA doesn't publish all the data, they were able to do some projections around the data using some algorithms. And what it shows that in the state of Texas, 37% increase in, in uh, food insecurity and, and, and SNAP caseload. Uh, over the over the course of the year, New York City twenty seven percent, thirty three percent in California, Ohio forty two percent, thirty seven percent in Wisconsin, seventy seven percent increase in Indiana. I mean, there's just about I think they looked about sixteen different states, and what we find is every one of them had mid double digit to even higher double digit increases in SNAP. And in the conversations we hear on the Hill around, and this is not a political statement, we're not going to get into politics, but the conversations around relief and so forth, sometimes I think these issues are underemphasized and people don't really realize the scope of what's going on. Well, I I think you're right. I mean, why is it underemphasized? It's probably because the news cycle is so filled with so many other things, um, whether they were issues related to the election and its aftermath or issues frankly, related to COVID and how vaccines are, are getting distributed and the number of cases that we're seeing and where there are hot spots. I know that in virtually every state and many communities across the nation, uh, there's a lot of consternation uh, about schools and whether they're going 
part-time, whether they're fully vault virtual, whether they're how much in-person learning. And I know just in, in my own small county in upstate New York, where we have six school districts, we've had multiple issues arise because one small school district had to close because the three custodians in the school district had gotten COVID. And so then none of the kids could go to school because no one could clean and open and shut the schools at the end of the day. Um, so I think the reason why food insecurity is not has not gotten the kind of attention that you would otherwise think is because we're frankly preoccupied with so many of these other things. But just below the surface, Stan, and I know our guest uh, has uh, is gonna who will join us later. We'll have some points of view on on these topics as well. But when you see the lines at at food banks, and no matter where you go across America, the lines on food banks are shocking. And the and the type people, it's not just the the very poor or the people who might even have always been traditionally considered SNAP eligible for food stamps. It's it's the middle class. And because, and of course, we've had a very disparate impact in terms of the pandemic. You know, people who are traditionally white collar and could work from home, many people have found this remarkably smooth Zoom calls notwithstanding. But those that are in uh, consumer facing jobs or those that have worked in restaurants or in travel, tourism, hospitality, those people are really suffering. And I think a lot of those people who've been accustomed to living a middle class life have found uh, that they are really uh, on the verge of poverty. And a lot of those folks are having trouble. And those are the folks that are showing up on the food lines. Let me, let me pass on something else, and, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to take you something I know you've, you've thought about and, and, and has bothered you, and that is uh, USDA doesn't report the data, right? So there's not even a, a, a feeder system coming out to the public or the media or elsewhere saying, hey, guys, we have a problem because they're not reporting the data on a regular basis. I'm curious as to why. Well, and, and here's this, the study that we did through CAMI. Um, uh, that study was undertaken because our folks, Russ Sykes in particular, the first person you mentioned who previously ran New York's SNAP program for many years, they actually went around and surveyed about 15 states as to what was happening in their state. Actually, it was more than 15. It was many states. They surveyed them. And because the USDA does not report the data on a uh, even a month or two month delay, they just this past week, and here we are in the last week of January, just this week, they reported data that had accumulated between March and September of last year. Just this week, they reported that data. That is way too slow. And it gets to the point of uh, one of my favorite topics is the kind of the antiquated bureaucratic system that exists within the USDA and the way in which we uh, treat some of these programs as very siloed, and we we treat SNAP and the USDA administrative regulatory process as completely segregated from other government uh, programs, where there's there's not the information sharing and the the use of data in a smart, intelligent way to make it more practical. I mean, you and I, we can we can make a bank deposit. Millions of Americans make bank deposits through their smartphones. Um, they were accustomed to ordering all sorts of goods and, and products and services, whether it's a meal or a book or 
clothing or Christmas tree lights, or which I had to order three times this year. Um, uh, we're, we're accustomed to doing all that stuff online, but we've not really moved sufficiently to modernize how we provide these services and make them available to people. And I think that's one of the reasons why we, we're proud to be part of CAMI because CAMI is about how do we modernize and innovate, use modern techniques to make government services not only more practical for per people to utilize, also make them more efficient and maintain program integrity at the same time. And so you can do these things. Yeah, and I think that that, that, that flows neatly into another piece that, that uh, we also have on the website um, where a whole bunch of food banks provided us with information around the struggles they're having and keeping pace uh, and, and the challenges. Uh, and, and a lot of it, again, gets back to data. And, and our guest, Sonal Shaw, will be, lives and breathes this stuff. So we'll come back to this issue, I'm sure, in much more detail. But um, these, these uh, state and local, these state and county SNAP programs um, face a lot of barriers in terms of uh, their ability to use banks and other entities and helping them get funding and get food out. It's really true. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, this is, I, I actually, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I looked at a prototype of a system whereby you could use a smartphone to make an application for SNAP. And you could also uh, receive the information about the individual and their eligibility, and also um, uh, upload uh, data like a driver's license or other identification information so that you can maintain program integrity. But all these things can now be done using modern technology. And you know, we really need to be pushing this. And I, I, I'm hopeful, I'm a Republican, uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will kind of push aside some of the past nostrums that have affected de Democrat and Republican administrations in some of many of these program areas and look for how we kind of make a quantum leap and advance the accessibility and reliability and efficiency of these programs. Yeah, and that's going to be a core topic again with our guest of this whole idea of the cross-agency data initiatives that the administration is talking about. This is so rich with opportunity uh, for those, those, those initiatives. One other issue before we bring Sonal Shaw into the discussion um, that is much the same in character but slightly different part of the problem, and that's this whole vaccine distribution challenge, the supply chain challenges we're having. Um, I'd argue, and, and there'd be some who would not be happy to, to hear this, but the idea that we assume that the military is the right way and the right process for distribution and tracking of vaccine, actually, for those of us who've worked in that environment, would suggest you might want to be looking elsewhere because they themselves internally have been struggling with innovation and struggling to move forward, struggling to adapt and, ta and take on new technologies and new ways of doing business. And in the middle of a pandemic is not the time to try to drive change inside an organization. I mean, there are, we don't have time to, to, for the change process. There are, again, as you said, smartphone apps, there's all kinds of technologies in the commercial world, and whether it's a Walmart, Amazon, you name the company, that have mastered to a much greater degree than anywhere in the U.S. government how to manage distribution, how to manage tracking, how to manage visibility, how to manage velocity. And most importantly, I think, and, and this was a point made to me by a friend of mine who's uh, one of the leading gurus on supply chain in the world. He said, what people don't think about is how do you manage planning? And, and you don't plan, you, you plan from the end state, not the beginning. And we do it exactly the reverse. Uh, and, and, and so companies that have actually done very well in the pandemic, or well, in t relatively speaking, 
Um, the Washington Post had a front page story on one, a California-based company called Flex, which and talked about how they had managed against the pandemic. And a lot of it was because they had this very, very sophisticated system and process for managing their supply chain and with visibility that we only dream about at the federal level. So there are presumptions even going into some of the, 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 the policies. And again, this is nonpartisan. It comes on both sides that we have certain capabilities that I'm not sure we actually have. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and I think that there's no silver bullet in this. Obviously, um, if you just think where we are today versus six months ago, I would argue, well, we are better off in so many ways and we're, we're still, we still haven't accomplished certain things in other ways. We're better off because we actually have vaccines. I mean, this was, this was a remarkable achievement for these companies the federal government, for the most part, not with Pfizer, but for the most part, actually paid the money up front. The, it's a remarkable scientific and, and, um, and technical achievement of the, of the pharma companies, uh, both here and in uh, Europe. And obviously, we know that there are vaccines developed in, in China. I'm not sure of the, of the uh, efficacy of those, of those particular ones. But, and we know Johnson & Johnson is about to come online, although its, it's uh, effectiveness rate is, is about 66%, I heard initially, but it's also a single dose vaccine. So the fact that we actually have vaccines where six months ago there were many doubters as to whether we could have them, um, that's a great accomplishment. But the, the, the process now of getting the production ramped up, and I know the new administration has taken advantage of a provision which was in the original contracts to, to basically double the production. And that's a great thing, but uh, I, I think that it, it's a mistake to simply rely upon a the notion that the government is going to be able to handle this all itself. I think we have to rely upon private sector expertise in terms of the logistics and the planning and and getting these vaccines out. I mean, just here in New York State, for instance, the state decided to not use the existing. Uh, county health department structure that they literally have been practicing every year for the last 10 years. And they didn't utilize that initially. They said, well, we'll do, to, do it through hospitals. In other words, they changed the system that had already been planned. And um, so I think, you know, they're recovering from that mistake now. But the biggest issue that, that everyone faces now is they need more. Our local health department in my county, the health the director told me, well, he did 500 last week, but he could do 500 a day. And they have a very efficient system to do it, but they can't get the vaccine. Hopefully over the next month or so, this supply situation will get solved. And to their credit, the Defense Logistics Agency, I mean, they, they have a lot of leadership in that it's pushing hard on the envelope. But pandemic or not, that, that frozen middle in every organization, government, private sector, what have you, tends to be a real challenge for folks to move quickly. And that's that's the name of the game, right? Velocity is everything right now. Um, so that that's a perfect introduction or a segue to our guests because um, we've sat here and laid out a whole bunch of problems and sort of theoretical ideas, but but she's gonna sort of help us solve them. Um, Sonal Shah is, uh, a, as I said, a longtime friend of mine, but also one of the more extraordinary people I know who spent a lot of time on these issues for more, I won't say how many years, but it's been more than a few years. Um, Sonal, I first met Sonal when she was the uh, Deputy Assistant to President Obama for the uh, White House Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation. Um, 
she was uh, then went on to found the Beck Center and was a at Georgetown University, where she was also a professor, the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation, uh, which she only recently stepped down and turned over to uh, to a new leader. Um, she's got all kinds of government experience, private sector experience at Google and elsewhere. Uh, she was the uh, policy director for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign, co-chaired the 21st Century Management Working Group for the Biden campaign. Um, and I will just say, and, and, and I say this uh, in, without trying to butter her up, these are, in fact, issues that she and I have been talking about for many years and that Sonal herself, through her work in innovation and technology, has been writing about, advocating for, and I think brings tremendous uh, perspective to the table. So, Sonal, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, uh, Stan and uh, Congressman Faso, it's so great to be here with both of you and to have this conversation and really enjoyed listening in on, on the first part of this. So, Sonal, let's start with, with this question of driving innovation. I mean, I want to start big picture because you've dealt so much with it and tried to push it. You know, it, it strikes me, and this is probably putting it poorly, but that the pandemic has, and, and the economic crisis have created a need for not just social innovation, but a, such obvious need for process and operational innovation. Um, and I think, as John said, you know, the, the vaccine development was truly a remarkable, remarkable achievement uh, and, and tons of credit to go around for that. Not so much, uh, although it, it's, I don't want to say that the distribution has been a failure. It's pretty early and we have massive needs and production limits and all that. But what do you see, let's just start with, given your experience in both government industry and, and, and the not-for-profit sector, what do you think have been the biggest barriers to, to actually having gotten off the ground right? What would you would like to see done differently? And again, forget which administration, just from a substantive sort of process perspective. Yeah, Stan, great question. So let me just start with like, I think one of the things and why the vaccine worked and it's worth rec recognizing, it's like what we put out there is the outcome that we wanted. We wanted a vaccine as fast as possible. So we made it easier every step of the way for people to test, for them to do the testing. So setting a goal and an outcome matters because then it allows you to figure out what you want to do. I think the problem with innovation is that we sort of, we don't separate invention from innovation. And process innovation is finding those things that are working and scaling it. How do we make it happen faster? How do we make it improve? Sometimes I think what we mix up is we're thinking about invention. How do we create a new process? How do we think about this differently? How do we do that? And if I were to look around the country, and at least when, that, when I was in the Obama administration, but even today, there are lots of things that work well. We need to figure out how to scale them and make them work rather than trying to recreate them and say, well, I'm going to come up with a new way of doing this and a better way of doing this. And frankly, in times of crises, it's not about finding new ways of doing things. It's finding new ways to operate to allow for scale to happen. Yeah, and I loved what you said, the first part of that. I mean, I, was like, I loved everything you just said, but the beginning of that, you, you, you made the comment about establishing an outcome first. What are we trying to achieve? And then working from there. In a sense, that dovetails nicely with what you see in, in, in institutions, be they public or private sector, that actually have innovated, is they start with that end state. But then they work backward. I would re-term that as the customer or user experience, the journey. You don't start from the beginning. You start from the end and you re-engineer backwards to see where. And, and, and I feel like that that's you know, it's kind of what you're talking about is you need to start from that premise and work your way back rather than starting from the front end just to see what we can do or 
or tinker here and there. Yeah, I think it's funny. Like when we were talking about Snap, I was thinking about this and, and sort of an interesting, it's like we don't think about like the customer that uses Snap. We start with like, how do we improve the process within government to deliver Snap? But we don't actually about think about the person who's actually receiving it and what does it mean for them? So in some ways, and I, I, I'm using this as an example only because it matters, but like Amazon thinks about the customer first. How do they want to see something? How do they get it? And I'm not saying Amazon's all right, but like Amazon has a way of thinking about people. That is, what are they trying to buy? How are they trying to buy it? How do I make it easier for them? Whereas I think the way we think about it in government, we're thinking about delivering staff. It's like, did we get it to the right people? Is the process internally working better? Is this agency working with that? So when we build the system, it's about the agencies and much less about the people. But if the outcome is what we are, which is it should be easier for someone to get their SNAP benefits within 10 minutes of when they log in, then you might build a process that looks yeah, you know that's it's it's it, you, you've actually just kind of captured one of the early uh and and continued bases for creating cami uh one of the questions people asked early on when we were first contemplating doing this was why do we make poor people work so hard so repeatedly to prove they're poor uh and if you start from a different perspective and the, the potential for using technology for for using data um frankly for using contractors and or others to help support the process because you as the government are setting the rules. All I'm doing is making sure somebody follows. That's not a administrative decisions. Um, what you're talking about is is really th that that same focus, John. I think that, that we kind of started with when we first started talking about this. Yeah, Sonal, uh, just picking up on some of the initial thoughts you had. Where would you think the the best opportunities are for the new administration to try to move this ball forward in terms of better delivery, more efficient delivery, better consumer focus on uh, government services. How would you, where would you think the best places for them to, to begin? Yeah, John, given that we're sort of in an economic and a health crisis, I'd probably just start with two. One you've already mentioned, which is SNAP benefits. Like how do we make it easier? How do we make it available for people to get? The second is unemployment insurance. As you have seen, unemployment insurance has been backlogged in many states, largely because the systems can't handle the number of people that need to use it. And the verification process, which I think you talked a little bit about, is still hand done. So is this the right person that should get it? So it requires a human person to define that, whereas we should be able to use technology to verify and very quickly make sure someone's uh, claims are verified. But the backlog in these systems, which is where, where it touches people's lives directly, is right there. And those two areas we can do immediately, and we have the ability to invest and make that happen. And then I would look at also the vaccine distribution vaccine. Again, I think you all, you both talked about this, which is we can use different channels of distribution. Every channel doesn't have to be exactly the same. Hospitals can be one, public health departments can be another, as well as nonprofits can be a third. Like we can use channels of distribution and be equitable. It doesn't have to be one in everything, but we have to recognize there are multiple channels that get to multiple people. And what we sometimes try to do is try to over-engineer the process as opposed to finding who are the channels. You know, one of the one of the things that I've only recently uh, become aware of is I've, I've been reading letters to the editor from local physicians in in my area in upstate New York who say, hey, I have uh, a lot of seniors in my practice. Uh, half of my practice are people that are over 70 years old, and yet I can't get the vaccines. And yet I'm always uh, delivering flu vaccines every year. 
why why aren't we included in this process? And I, I think that that's a perfect example where we've maybe even overthought the issue um, rather than going through some traditional channels. And John, we have that data, right? We know who serves the Medicare population. Like that is actually available information that Medicare, Medicaid, Center for Medicaid and Medicare have. We could actually use that information and deliver on a more timely basis. Like that is not data that we don't have. That's and that's the point going back to supply chain management, right? I mean, that's it's it's exactly how how do you what data do you need and how do you actually manage it in the way that you're talking about? But I, you know, UI is an interesting one because states that have taken advantage of the flexibilities that were provided for UI in the CARES package have done massively better than states that have not taken advantage in terms of working down backlogs and so forth. And 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 what we've talked a lot about on our website and also in our previous podcast is SNAP is, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think SNAP is about the only major benefits program that has limitations and will not take advantage of the flexibilities. They, they're very set in their ways about how they want this done. And so that gets to whether you can use contractors for surge support or for other things and whether you can share data, cross data. They, they, there's been a number of ideas. Um, Families USA has been pushing this idea that, so you may remember from the ACA, around if I come into if I come into the system and I don't but I qualify for Medicare or Medicaid rather why am I not being directed right to Medicaid why do I have to go back through a whole nother process the same thing's true I think on the health side um, you, you, you raise another issue that I, I want to make sure we talk about because um, we've had a lot of conversations with folks both in the private sector and, 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 and the not-for-profit sector about this there's obviously a lot of concern about equity and the equity of distribution of the vaccine, equity of testing, and so forth. Um, and you know, in DC, uh, where I live, uh, the issue came up very quickly when the vaccine became available, and they started a process of geographically limiting access. So you had to live in certain wards, which by statistically were the underserved wards, to qualify for certain scheduling days, and then it opened up to others. And I just other scheduling days. In our case, over seventy percent of the initial vaccine appointments, the first few weeks. Uh, went to folks in the wards that are the the the, the, the um, most economically secure wards in the city, and that that's a pretty terrible. That's only like two wards, three wards. It's, so talk a little bit about the equity question because I know that that again, John and I were in a conversation not too long ago with some folks that are in the private sector who were saying we have all these call centers where people are calling in for help, and you know they're going to have massive surge requirement. Why are we not reversing that order? Back to your customer point, why are we not using the data we have? from UI to trigger somebody to make a phone call to say, hey, John Faso, if you're on UI, do you realize you may qualify for the marketplace, you may qualify for for Medicaid, which we know works because some, I think it's Kentucky did this and had tremendous success. And now let's take that to the next step. Why would we be doing that with the vaccines where we know we have a tremendous lack of uptake in certain communities, lack of information, education, what have you, a proactive approach as opposed to waiting for this customer or the citizen to come to the government. Does that, you follow that, that the train of thought? Why are we not using these tools? Yeah. Do you see an opportunity with the new administration to start moving some of that or? I do. I think it requires us to sort of work with the states and localities a little differently. And I think, let me just start with, I think what's interesting is, and I've been in some of these conversations because I'm, I'm advising a, a company on testing, but what's been interesting to watch is how much of the conversation is about the process of doing stuff from the top down 
whether setting the, again, not setting the goal of saying, hey, we want to get 30% of the population in Ward 8 vaccinated, and we're going to make sure that the vaccines go there, and we're going to find the person in Ward 8 who knows how to figure this out. And they're going to do it and they're going to distribute that and they're going to report back to us have they been able to give those vaccines instead what we spend a lot of time doing is over engineering how to do it as opposed to saying where is that channel how do we get it to them and how do we make sure they figure out how to do it maybe it's churches maybe it's whatever the trusted entity in those areas is but making sure because people show up at church on sunday mornings let's be clear they're not not showing up they're showing up so we can do that and we can actually do something about it. But I think what we try to do is we try to over engineer it and say, well, we're going to create this center and then they're going to come here and then there's going to be a drive through. But listen, let people figure out what works for them and let them figure it out. We spend so much time over engineering. I would just say set the goal, send the vaccines, get them done. And if they're not, then learn from that and rapidly change it in the next 24 hours or 48 hours because that data can help you understand what the problem is faster than us trying to over-engineer what we think the problem is. So I hate to use the term again, but I'm going to come back to the same thing. This is classic supply chain orchestration, what you're talking about. I mean, the companies that do it well do it in real time and they do it instantly. And to your point, we tend not to. We tend just to back study whatever or we don't even recognize where the gaps are because we don't use the data right. And, and one of the things, and John may have a better perspective on this and you both may, one of the things that we get caught up in is like, can data be shared? Is the privacy issues, all of that? Like, listen, the private sector has also figured this part out. You can, you can share data that's anonymized, but still figure out who needs to be addressed and give people the, the stuff. But I want to say, like, I watch it. I live in a community right now in Houston that is very Latino, African-American. Average income is probably around thirty to $50,000 a year. They give their data to the private sector all the time, willingly. And we're, we're having these debates in government that we need to have this conversation to say, what is it we're trying to do? Are we trying to provide better services or are we worried about everything else? And we need to answer that question, but we can do this well because it does happen. Well, I, I think Sonal makes a great point. It's kind of a, when you were describing that, I was, I was reminded of the uh, uh, the old line about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know, it's like we spend this time in in government trying to overanalyze certain things. When, frankly, there are there are people, private sector, and there are other proven sources of distribution uh, that are often ignored. They they just had a one of the counties in upstate New York just had a um, got noticed they were going to get 400 extra doses of the Moderna vaccine. And they spun themselves into a frenzy trying to figure out, well, who do we go to? Rather than, rather than just calling up all the physician practices in their county and saying, if you had uh, 50 vaccines, 50 doses, could you distribute them? No, they, they were going to all the local officials and saying, send us people that you think would be wanting the vaccine, which was kind of insane. And... Um, but how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? That's the way government sometimes approaches this. That's a, that's a great point. That's a great analogy. Sona, one last question for you. And, 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 and again, we work together on, on more than one campaign, but I know that you've spent a lot of time on these questions, taking the political lens off and all that, but from a purely substantive perspective, where do you see or where do you draw the most hope from what you've seen in terms of some of the initial policy outlines or prescriptions that are coming out of the new administration. Are we going to, do you think that this is the time that 
I look at the cross-agency data uh, initiative as one real incredible opportunity if people are willing to step into the breach and really take on some orthodoxy. What's your sense? Where are the opportunities? I, I see it in probably three places, Stan. One is on the cross-agency data and the, the emphasis they're putting on data and, and the technology and making it work better. Uh, one. Two, watching just the COVID response stuff and just talking about we want a million vac people vaccinated a day. Setting those goals really sort of helps everybody work backwards from like, this is what we want. This is where we're going to do it. And this is how it's going to be done. Now, still the states have to figure that out. But I think the federal government setting that goal and making sure the supply is there is actually super important because without the supply, it doesn't matter all of the other stuff. So I think it, it, it's important the federal government's doing that. The third place, which I hope they will take on, and I, you know, I've certainly heard the rumblings of it internally, is procurement. Now I know it's like the unsexy topic of the day, but like getting procurement right, right, like getting procurement right matters because the usual suspects have been getting these contracts forever. And if the outcome isn't being achieved, maybe we should ask the question of like, who can deliver this on a timely basis? Who are, and, and, and look, it's a politically sensitive topic. I know it. I know it's politically hard to do because, you know, there, there's lots of people that get dis, that get discounted in this process, but like thinking about how to use that effectively and how to challenge current players in the procurement system to deliver and hold them accountable. If we can do that, that in itself is a great step because that is lots of services being delivered through that process. And that's nonprofit as well as for-profit. It's not just a for-profit thing. There's also a lot of nonprofits in the procurement process that we need to challenge. You're, you're singing my song. So this great topic for another conversation because that's an area that def, definitely, it's not a policy question. It's, an, it's, a, it's a delivery question and how do you structure and how do you deal with the workforce and so forth and then these are huge go ahead can i have one comment to all this as we think about public service delivery like i just hope we start with the concept of dignity because i think sometimes we think about delivery as a process as a thing that we need to deliver to those poor people like we just need to start with dignity. Like nobody wants to be considered poor. Nobody wants to have to go stand in the food lines. Nobody, I have a friend who has to get Medicaid and is terrified because he thinks he's not poor. Like we have to think about dignity in a process. Like people are coming to this as a last resort. They're not coming to it as a first resort. And when we think about how we deliver services in a dignified manner, we need to respect the fact that people don't want to be in these situations and don't want to be referred to as poor, don't want to be referred to as indigent, don't want to be referred to as the other. And we really need to understand that because as John said, this is the middle class. This is, you know, those that are below the middle class, they're just trying to survive and they're not trying to take advantage of a system, but dignity in this really matters. And I certainly hope that we start with the concept of dignity first. That's a great, that's a great point. And I, I, I hope that as we, as we see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully with the, um, the pandemic, that we don't forget the lessons that we've learned in terms of delivery of services and how to do it and, and treating people with dignity in this entire process. It's a, it is a great point. And, and we've used the term on this program before, it's time for lessons learned, not lessons observed. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a great point. It's a, it's a wonderful way to sort of bring this conversation to a, to a close. Sonal Shaw, thanks so much for joining us. As suspected, you provided some really great insight. Really, really appreciate it. And I think maybe what we want to do is check back with you at some point later in the year so we can all have a serious conversation about are we making progress? Are we innovating? 
Yeah, are we get are we, are we moving the process forward? So thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Stan, thank you for doing this. And John, what a pleasure. It's such a, it's such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Great. Uh, likewise, I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to meet you and, and engage in this dialogue. And John, I'll be seeing you again pretty soon. We go back at it again. Yes, you will. Thank you, Stan. Thanks, everybody. And thanks for joining us. Once again, more information about the Center for Accountability, Modernization, and Innovation is at our website, thecenterforami.org. For People First, I'm Stan Soloway. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Accountability, Modernization, and Innovation. To learn more about how we can make government programs work better for the American people, subscribe to our show or visit our website at thecenterforami.org.